0: Welcome to Biblical Literacy 101. This is a weekly in person class taught at Columbus Baptist Church. This course is a verse by verse deep dive into the scriptures. We encourage you to listen to these recordings and follow along with your Bible open. With that being said, let's get into this week's class.
1: Biblical Literacy 101 on Friday, June 11th of 2021. I'm grateful to have everybody here tonight as well as those who may be listening after the fact. Um, today we are going to be diving through Psalm 20 and 21, and I'm pumped about it. I'm ready to go. So let's start off by seeking the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father. I thank you for the opportunity to stand here today, Lord. You've given me knowledge of your word and drawn me out of the kingdom of darkness into your light, Father, drawn towards a life of obedience towards you, God. We are the only one worth worshiping God and to study you and what you've done through history and throughout all the ages may be the pleasure of my heart and all of your church, Father. So God, may the teaching of your word tonight be edifying, God. I pray that it would be correct, Heavenly Father, that everyone listening would search the scriptures, God, and you would touch their hearts to know the truth of what I teach tonight, Lord God. May your spirit be with us, Father, May your word truly cut to hearts tonight, as you say it does, Heavenly Father. I pray this in the name of the Lord, our Savior, and the great King, who reigns at the right hand of God, in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Alrighty. So, we are going to be starting off tonight in Psalm 20. We are trekking through the book. It's very exciting. So let's just get on going. So um, this psalm does not... Okay, it does have an intro, but it's um, ground we've covered before. It says, To the Choir Master, Psalm of David. Um, We've talked about both these titles before. Um, If you don't know, you can review any of our previous recordings, or especially the ones towards the beginning, but I will just keep on going. And the title of this psalm, as the ESV has it, is Trust in the Name of the Lord our God. I think it's a pretty fitting title, but it um, could maybe be a little bit more there. We'll, we shall see as we get into it. So we will start off here. Um, it's a relatively short psalm, so I think we're just going to read through the whole thing and then we'll go break this down chunk by chunk. So if you'd like to look at the text with me, I'll start off. It's the word of the Lord. It says, may the Lord answer you in the day of trouble. May the name of the God of Jacob protect you. May he send you help from the sanctuary and give you support from Zion. May he remember all your offerings and regard with favor your burnt sacrifices. And there's a salah. May he grant you your heart's desire and fulfill all your plans. May we shout for joy over your salvation, and in the name of our God, set up our banners. May the Lord fulfill all your petitions. Now I know that the Lord saves his anointed. He will answer him from his holy heaven with the saving might of his right hand. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. They collapse and fall, but we rise and stand upright. O Lord, save the king. May he answer us when we call. This is the word of the Lord. So as a bit of context here, um, you may have noticed already that the I don't know if was, the, the pronouns, I think, is the, the word I'm looking for. Being used are, are very interesting here, uh, in that this is largely addressed to you. It's it's in the second person. That's what I'm looking for. It's not a, a phrase that we normally use. We normally either would use the first person and say, "I do this" or "I do that," or in the third person and say, um, "They did that" or "They did that." The second person, as a way of saying you, is a bit of a strange form of literature. So. This will be evident later on in the psalm, but I'll just say from the start here as a way to understand this, this psalm is the you who's in question. It's not a mysterious character. It's the king of Israel. In a specific instance, it's King David, although this surely is a psalm that can and probably was used for later kings of Israel. And the context of how this would be played out is obviously like any of the other psalms, is something that a congregation would sing together, But in the formation of this, um, there's not a specific time when it's super clear about um, when exactly this is put together, but it could be um, possibly 2 Samuel 10 before David had a great battle where he was about to go to war against the Philistines, and the occasion as we see in other places in scriptures, that sacrifices would often be offered before a great battle and there would be prayers. So the context is that uh, the soldiers of Israel and any of the camp followers, the the wives of the soldiers, or anyone who's attending the army is singing this. They're praying this towards the king as he's about to go towards a great battle and praying, may the Lord do all this for you as we're about to enter into this battle Most likely, probably against the Philistines, but it could be against any of God's enemies. So most likely, David is writing this, thinking about an experience that he had in the past when this happened, and now that's being celebrated whenever the psalm is sung. So that's, I mean, it's pretty clear, I think, that that's the context. Like I said, there's not a necessarily specific place we can point to, but there's some great battle before that the people of Israel were facing, and they were praying this as they were about to go in. So that will be very helpful as we go into this and understanding that you. So we will chop on the first three verses here. So it says, may the Lord answer you in the day of trouble. Like I just said, the day of trouble, it's not um, a confusing thing. The day of trouble is now. It's when this is happening in the context of it. They are about to go into a great battle, and that is the deliverance they're praying for. Um, says, may the name of the God of Jacob protect you. Um, we'll see this later on in the Psalm 2 in reference to the power of the name of God, and I just want to touch on this briefly, because I think it's something that we often hear in our, well, we see it in scripture, and we even use it in our Christian culture, true, about the power of the name of God, and may the name of the Lord be with you. It's kind of an odd turn of phrase, right? Like, how can a, a name itself have power? Could I say, may the name of Matt Swart be with you? Like, well, (laughs) I don't know. My name cannot go apart from me, and necessarily, it's not a physical manifestation. Uh, What scripture is talking about in this instance, and whenever the power of the name of the Lord is being referred to in other instances, it's this general reference to the character, to the being of God, kind of how someone's name might go before them in terms of their reputation and their strength. If if you were to say, I come in the name of Matt Swart, or if I come, say in this instance, if I came in the name of King David, there's something to that. Now, if an army is not only going in the name of the Lord as if, like, before him, by his being sent by him, but literally with his presence, there's something to that. So I think that's what the scripture is getting at. It says, May the name of the God of Jacob, is by the, the character, the manifest presence of God, may that be with you and protect you as you go into this great battle. Okay, then we look in verse 2. It says, may he send you help from the sanctuary and give you support from Zion. Um, another, possibly two odd of phrases here, sanctuary and Zion, I want to consider. The word sanctuary, to start with, what this, I forgot to write down what the actual Hebrew word is, but what it means is, is Oh, no, I did. It's, um, it's Kadesh. Q-U-D-E-S-H. Kadesh. Uh, it means holiness. It's a word that's often used to refer to the center of the tabernacle that the Israelites built while they were in the desert and which was still present throughout Israel at this time, um, with the idea of this is the place where God's presence dwells, his sanctuary, it's his, his house in one way or another and give you support from Zion. This is also an important term that we understand, because it's all over Scripture, especially the Psalms. About, there's lots of references to Zion. Now, there's a couple things that this could mean. It could be in reference to a specific hill in Jerusalem, or the collection of hills in Jerusalem. That the gist of it is it's basically Jerusalem, is what Zion is talking about in that area. With Again, the idea being that this is a place where God's presence dwells especially. But I think there's also something to this. And he says, may he send you help from the sanctuary, first God's presence, and give you support from Zion. And this is not only the place where God's presence dwells, but Jerusalem is the place where God's people dwell. So I think what the text is getting at here is, may God send you help literally in and of himself and his presence, but also may the people of God be fully with you, King David, and we support you as you go into battle. Okay, and then verse 3 here. Um, Something that may not seem very notable on the surface, but which I just found so extraordinarily interesting Okay, it says, may he remember all your offerings and regard with favor your burnt sacrifices. Now, clarify the terms here. He is the Lord. May the Lord remember all your offerings and regard with favor your, the king's, burnt sacrifices. So I don't know if this is what anybody else thought about when you read this, but my first thought, was, I just finished going through the book of Leviticus, in which it's extremely clear what the specifications for the burnt sacrifices are. So that last phrase kind of came off as a little bit odd to me with, uh, well, shouldn't they know whether the Lord is going to regard with favor their sacrifices or not? Like, that's one of the things that made the Lord different from the rest of the surrounding gods is the pagan Canaanite gods or any of the nations. It's, you kind of had to guess about how to please them, and that's part of what makes the Lord different, and his will is clear. So it really came across as strange to me. Um... But then, as I dug into it, it started to make a little bit more sense. And I want to first turn to one passage in Deuteronomy, which I think is helpful for understanding this. So these are instructions just before the Israelites are about to cross into the Promised Land, and Moses is kind of giving this farewell address. And he get oh, and for anyone listening, because it's not on the screen, this is Deuteronomy 17 verses 18 to 19. So this is part of a, a larger dialogue that Moses is giving in terms of how the king of Israel should conduct himself. And it reads this, And when he, the king, sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law, the book of Deuteronomy, approved by the Levitical priest, and it shall be with him, and he shall read it in all, all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law and these statues and doing them. Now, the idea here being that De- Deuteronomy is really kind of the companion book to Leviticus, in many ways. It rehashes a lot of what came out in the law beforehand, and another way that Moses articulates it. And if it, I mean, it's pretty clear on the surface here, but what Moses is saying is this law is so important, the king should write a copy of it himself, and always have it by him, and have the Levitical priests constantly read it to him, possibly because he may have not been able to read, if (laughs) in that case. Um, So yeah, the kings should know this law, but if if you read through the annals of the kings, it'll become very clear that many of them most certainly did not know the law, as the law, really what was their Bible at that time, uh, was found accidentally in the, t- in the temple by King Josiah in Second Kings 22, almost at the end of the reign of the, the kingdom of Judah. So, all that to say, the kings should know this, but in many times they didn't, so even if God had already made his will clear, that doesn't mean that man took the time to read what he tried to make clear to them. Okay, let's come back to verse three again. So, may he remember all your offerings and regard with favor your burnt sacrifices. So I just, before we move on, just one example of a king who did not do this very early on. Um, If you look in 1 Samuel, there is, okay, it's 1 Samuel 13 is where this happened, that King Saul was told by Samuel, he said, Saul, okay, you're about to go to battle. I want you to wait seven days before I get there. And so you offer this sacrifice. Don't offer it beforehand. Samuel made that very clear to Saul because he's doing, because he's about to get ready to go to battle with the Philistines. What happens is Saul starts getting antsy. His his men are deserting him. There's like a whole horde of Philistines, and he's trying to appease them, and he offers a sacrifice before Samuel gets there. And it destroys him. It is the nail in the coffin that strips Saul of his authority to rule the kingdom of Israel. It's what ruins him. So all that to say that really, if we could rephrase verse 3, maybe in modern English for I think what this is really getting at, is may the king be in right relationship with God and be aware of his statues and actually be obeying them so that we can follow this man. May he conduct the sacrifices and all the rituals he's supposed to do for this people. May he be doing it right. Okay. So, moving on. Oh, okay. I have the references on the screen. That's why I didn't write them down. Good gosh. Okay, I, I told you... Yes, I was right. 1 Samuel thirteen eight is where Saul does not wait. 1 Samuel ten eight is where Samuel very explicitly tells Saul you need to wait before you offer the sacrifice. Okay, let's move on to verses 4 and 5 here. May he grant you your heart's desire and fulfill all your plans. May we shout for joy over your salvation and in the name of our God set up banners. May the Lord fulfill all your petitions. Okay, so verse 4, <laughs> let's take a look at that. On the, this is just begging to be pulled out of context, right? Absolutely begging it. Now, I want to consider, when we look at that verse, about the whole thing I just went through with verse 3, about how clearly if the people are praying this, and we look at what actually happened in um the tale in 2 Samuel, when this probably happened before, is God gave David victory, and we see throughout the histories of his battles that David was obeying the Lord and offering correct sacrifice. He was aware of the law of God. So when this happens in verse 4, and the people say, may he grant you your heart's desire and fulfill all your plans, you know, we'll actually see some of this in Psalm 21 too we need to consider this in the context that at least when this was originally written, this is about King David, a man whose heart was right before God. And his heart's desire, literally in the instance when this was written, is for deliverance for the people of God, for their success, for the enemies of God to be defeated, right things. His plans were to slay God's enemies. It's not ambiguous. It's not difficult. That's exactly what the people are praying here. So again... If anybody wants to pull this verse out of its context and use it, you should interpret it as, again, what this is really saying here, is may God grant you desires that line up with his will while your heart is in the right place and fulfill the plans that you made in a, according to fill his will. It's not just whatever comes cooking up out of the human heart. It's the plans and desires that come from a heart that is firmly established and rooted in God's law. So please, if you ever hear that as just people saying, oh, well, God, what God really wants is just for all your desires to be fulfilled. No, that's not. If your desires are right and you really are a child of God, by all means, yes, and that's a beautiful thing, isn't it? When Because that we can pray this prayer and say that the Lord does want your desires to be fulfilled when they line up with his desires. Because guess what? Those are the only good desires anyway. So that's on verse 4. And then... Take all that and flow that into verse 5. Now, I just want you to get the image here. Again, consider this is happening before a battle. There's men lining up. They're about to go to war. And the banners they're talking about here, they're banners of war. In the name of our God, they're getting ready to set up their banners and go to war against the enemy. And in this instance, under the head of a right godly, good king in a good plan that lines up with the Lord's will, the people rejoice over what is happening, and all are filled with a sense of joy and excitement and adventure as the people go to war for the Lord's cause. This is what it looks like when the kingdom of God is administrated correctly, that the leaders are happy because their people support them, because they have their my, their Right needs in mind because the king is under the headship of God and obeying him, and all rejoice. This is what it means to be a soldier in the Lord's army. Okay. So, moving on to verses 6 to 8, which reads, Now I know that the Lord saves his anointed. He will answer him from his holy heaven with the saving might of his right hand. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. They collapse and fall, but we rise and stand upright. Okay, now, first look at verse 6. You probably noticed this, that there is a sudden change of... I still don't know the literary term for it, but he switches from second person to first person, whatever the (laughs) term for that is. Someone can correct me during our Q&A time. Um, So why? What's going on here? So it's... A couple things that this could be. Here's my personal theory, is that this is, again, this is probably David looking back at something that happened before. Is Again, catch the imagery. Okay, so all these people are sitting before battle. They're praying to God for him to give them success and deliverance. At least in my mind, I see David just kind of being caught up in the middle of this, and in the middle, and just saying, like, I know that the Lord will save his anointed. He will answer him from his holy heaven with the saving might of his right hand. And then people come back, yeah, David, you're right. Some trust in chariots and horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. So that's how I see it, that David is just caught up in the moment, and he just hops up in the middle of this prayer to say his own bit. It could also be like the high priest among the people was taking this part, um, as some liturgies will have a celebrant and a people, like you might see in the Catholic Church or the Anglican Church. So it could be that, or it could just be a prominent person from among the people. But I like the first idea personally. Okay, and again, now I know that the Lord saves his anointed. Again, this should clearly call us forth, that that anointed is a term that's used to refer to the Messiah um, throughout the Psalms. So definitely calling forth the Christ, but at least in a specific instance, what David meant, even though we can take it to mean Christ as well, is his an- the anointed was literally the person who had oil anointed over their head, when they became king of Israel, which was David in this instance. So you can read about that in 2 Samuel 2. Yes, that's literally, not 2 Samuel chapter 2, I mean 2 Samuel as well. Okay, and then consider, consider the confidence that whether it's David or the high priest or whoever it is, that they have the Lord absolutely will save his anointed. And then think about why. Why will God save his anointed? It's because... His strength comes from his holy heaven and his right hand that we see right here, a common theme throughout the Psalms, that David's confidence in his victory is never about what he has. It's always about what God can offer. Just like we see that some trust in chariots and horses, but they trust in the name of the God, of of our God, not the God. Um, this should probably cause to call back to some imagery of the Exodus when this literally happened and the Egyptians trusted in the might of their chariots and their war horses and God stuck them all in the Red Sea and demolished them. Okay, so that's that chunk. And then back to the end here. At um verse nine. It says, O oh Lord, save the king, may he answer us when we call. Um, do you know God save the king is a biblical term. <laughs> So, um, I want to focus on this last phrase at the end here, which says, may he answer us when we call. At first, I thought it was, like, written wrong or something, because it seemed to me like it should say, like, may the Lord answer us when we call. And it seemed to be talking about the king, which I thought was really strange. But after I looked at it more, it does actually seem like that's exactly what it's saying. That, again, think think this is the people praying before a battle, saying, O oh Lord, support the king and his cause, and may he, being the king, answer us when we call. And again, we see here a very important idea about the nature of biblical authority and rule, that the people's hope for the king is that he is attentive to their cries. He's aware of what's going on with his people, that the victory that, God, that they are praying that God gives him today for them That it's not just all about himself, that this is for the nation of Israel, so the king can give back. Um, Something many of us would do well to consider as we think about the proper role of leadership in the church, about how important it is for those in authority to, well, it's really that the reason they're there is to be attentive to the cries of their people and lead well. Okay, so we are going to stroke our oar through here as we finish up, as we be- just a review. Um, I didn't put this on the slides, but did I even- OK. Um, overview. Quick. So the idea being here is that the people of God are praying for their king on the eve of the battle and seeking to support him, generally. Now we think about application. Again, we talked about this through, but just as a review, the Christian life and what we do, it's meant to be a collective battle. That this scene we see here of the people supporting their king before battle, isn't just something that happened in the times of Israel. This is something we're in every single day. All the time, we are a people being led by, you know, one king or another, or elders or whoever it is that's there. And we're in this together, and we should be seeking the welfare of our authorities, as well as trying to hold them accountable that they're doing what's right and offering the proper sacrifices so that the Lord doesn't strike them down and that we have victory. Yeah, and all, just on that, you know, it's so easy to tear down authority and to critique, just to remember that the king has a high calling, and it's important to pray for them. Even if it is a King Saul type of figure who isn't offering the right sacrifices, we may pray that they do... Offer the right sacrifices, and the Lord would reverse the fate of His people. Okay, relationship idea. Our God is a warrior. I think it's very easy in our culture to kind of soften the claws of the line of Judah in many ways. I mean, it's just all over the Psalms that our God is a fighter, and I think that if we're missing relationship with Him and we're pursuing greater intimacy we need to make sure we're in the fight, too, because that's where the Lord is, constantly fighting for this world and the hearts of his people and against evil. And if we want to sit back on the sidelines and just try to play the nice, peaceful, easy Christian life, we're not going to see him, and it's also really not much of a life at all. It's meant to be a war with one another, and that is where we will meet God. Again, as we see from this psalm, whose strength is far above anything the world can hope to match. All righty, I am going to pause here for Q&A. Anybody has any questions?
0: Jesse? In verse 6, the phrase holy heaven is not something I typically see when the word heaven is in the Bible. It's mm. kind of by itself. In your reading and study, did you find any significance to why that was put in front of it?
1: I will say I personally was not struck by that, so I didn't investigate it, but that is a very good question. Yeah, because I agree that that's often not a phrase we see before it. So, unfortunately, I do not know, but that is a good thing to investigate, I would...
2: would like to offer something on that. Um, that word heaven usually means um, the area above. So, it, it could just as easily be used to describe The sky and the expanse above you. Mm -hmm. So, to add the modifier of holy, he's making sure, because you could use that word also to describe where God is, but by using the modifier holy, he's making it clear what he's talking about.
1: Absolutely, Justin. I think it's right on. Lindsay? Oh, that was a question. Oh, just, all right. (laughs) Cool. Um, If I could
2: offer just two quick things I wanted to. For
1: when it changes from... Oh, yes, yes. Uh, And one thing, I I really liked what you said on
2: verse 3 about how it should be a a reminder for the king to make sure to check himself and make sure he's doing right. Um, I wanted to add, because I think there's also another layer to that, that it's also, in what you said very well at the end there, that the king, that a leader has a high calling and that they also, they need support as well. Absolutely. So I think verse 3 also uh, layers in for the king who is doing good, but may still doubt himself Mm. that those who are supporting him say in that kind of, in the same way that we say God remember, and we remind ourselves that God does remember, when they say, you know, may God honor your sacrifices, may God remember your offerings, they're saying, hey, he does, you know he does, and you've been good, and you can trust that God's going to support you, just as another layer to that.
1: Yeah, that's super good, Justin. I mean, oh my gosh, dude, those leading need encouragement. So that's such a good way to put it. Yeah, like, man, may the Lord remember and see the blood, sweat, and tears that you are putting in for his cause and the way that you are pursuing right relationship and making holiness important. Like, God bless you and thank you for being in that spot. Okay, also, before we move on, I was just looking at the test and I realized um, I don't think I need to do as many cool word things as possible to, (laughs) I I just missed one thing. I just want to click. So in verse seven, before we move on, um, it says some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord, our God. Um, The word there, it doesn't really mean trust. It's actually the same word I talked about before in Psalm 8, when it says, um, what is man that you are mindful of him? It's a word, zakar. It means remember. I just think it's a cool thing to add on to the, the verse here. It says, some trust in chariots. and know I get why they translated it to make it parallel. But it really says, some trust in chariots and some in horses. But we remember the name of the Lord our God. Just is a cool offering. Okay, let us move on to Psalm 21. Okay, so this one is a little bit longer. So I won't read through the whole thing. We'll take it chunk by chunk. And we will get right into it. Okay, context. Um, again, this isn't one where there's. Well, I'll take that back. Okay, this is really meant to be understood as a direct follow-up to Psalm 20. Um, I don't know if Jesse did this intentionally when he set it up, but they're like meant to be together. So I'm really thankful that I got the opportunity to pair them. It just worked. Yeah, because Psalm 20 is this prayer for God, well, from the people of God, for God to deliver the king, and Psalm 21 should be understood as now the king rejoicing that God has given him said deliverance. So as we read through this, just consider that. Um, that's the whole setup for this. Okay, we'll start off in verses 1 and 2. Oh, and again, just, it says to the choir master, Psalm of David, standard stuff there in the intro. Uh, I actually, I like the title for this one a lot better too. It says the king rejoices in the Lord's strength, which I think is really just spot on, at least for the first half of the psalm. It's totally what it's getting at. Okay, so the first two verses read, O Lord, in your strength the king rejoices, and in your salvation how greatly he exalts. You have given him his heart's desire, and have not withheld the request of his lips. And then there's a salah. So first thing we want to note here is note the two yours in the beginning. O Lord, in your strength the king rejoices, and in your salvation how greatly he exalts. Um, this is something that Justin really hammered into last week in Psalm 18. I'd highly encourage you to go listen to that if you haven't. Is, I mean, this is just a common theme all throughout the Psalms that we see. Again, note, this is about the victory that David has just been given in Psalm 20. He's given all the credit to God that it was his strength and his salvation that is the thing that David is now reveling in. And then, verse 2 is super interesting, too. Again, it has that heart. You have given him his heart's desire. Again, if anyone wants to pull it out of context, what he's still talking about is his heart's desire, in this instance, was for deliverance in battle. And that's what the Lord gave him. And that was his request. It's for deliverance for the people of God. But something else that i Mom, I didn't pick this up on the first read, but as I looked at some commentary on it, my eyes were opened... Look at the way this is free. You have given him his heart's desire and have not withheld the request of his lips. Think about the relationship here to prayer. I know that, I don't know if you've probably heard this term before about how, oh, like, I don't really need to to pray anything because, like, God knows what's in my heart, right? Like, he knows what's there. And I think we see here both sides of that coin about how, yes, it says you have given him his heart's desire, that the Lord was aware of what was the desire of David's heart, and he gave him that. But yet, we also see that David most likely expressed that heart's desire with his lips, that he prayed it out loud to God. And I think there's something we would do well to note there that, you know, even if it doesn't always logically fly up like, oh, like, if the Lord knows what's in my heart, why do I need to pray? Well, the Bible says you should. <laughs> so it's not really up to us to question that. Um, I mean, there's a whole bunch of things we can get into about why it's appropriate, but all that to say that. Prayer is important and about actually enunciating to God what your requests are. Okay, let's move on. Verses 3 and 4. For you meet him with rich blessings. You have set a crown of fine gold upon his head. He asked life of you, you gave it to him. Length of days forever and ever. I'm also, I probably should have said this at the start, but if this wasn't clear, now this one is in third person. David's talking about himself indirectly, if that wasn't clear to anybody, just so we're all on the same page. Okay, again, like there's just all kinds of stuff that can be cherry-picked out of this for nonsense in these two songs. If you grabbed verses three and four on their own, you could really make some wacky arguments with it to say that, I don't know, there's just a whole bunch of stuff with prosperity. Like, we gotta consider the context of what's going on here. Um, first, look at that part In verse 3, you meet him with rich blessings, you set a crown of fine gold upon his head. Two parts here, the crown and the gold. What has David just been all mixed up in Psalm 20? He's contending for his people, for the people of God, for the nation. And I think when he's talking about the crown here, It's this idea of, Lord, you have prospered this nation. The crown is still sitting on my head. You've anointed me over this people, and you are prospering the people. Praise your name. And a crown of gold, which, you know, we could just shrug it off, but I think there is something notable here. I think the idea is that David's not reveling in the fact that he has this expensive piece of headwear, I think what he's getting at is it's a sign of God's blessing and favor for the people of Israel. That that gold is because they've been delivered from their enemies, and they've received plunder, and I don't want to use the term for prosperity, but it's like God is with his people, and they are seeking to obey him, and that obedience is leading to fruitfulness. And David is praising God for that. It's not the riches in and of themselves, but it's those riches as an expression of God's hand upon his people. Okay, and again, in verse 4, he asks the life of you. You gave it to him. Length of days, forever and ever. Well, why was David asking life? Because his life was literally just in danger from being slayed by the Philistines. So what he's saying is, Lord, I the people and me prayed together that I wouldn't die in battle, and you delivered me. I didn't die. I still have a life, and you gave it to me and the length of days forever and ever. We could just understand this as hyperbole, which it probably is in a way, but I think David may also be getting at the promise that he received in 2nd Samuel 7 when the Lord made a covenant with him that he would have someone on the throne forever. That David is rejoicing that God is delivering upon his promise and fulfilling his covenant and establishing his kingdom. Um, Also, it's totally messianic. Um, We'll dig into that a little bit later. I mainly want to focus on how it applies to David, but this whole psalm, you can read in the context of Christ, too. Okay. Moving on to 5, 6, and 7. It says, His glory is great through your salvation. Splendor and majesty you bestow on him, for you make him most blessed forever. You make him glad with the joy of your presence, for the king trust in the Lord, and through the steadfast love of the Most High He shall not be moved. So, his glory is great through your salvation, splendor and majesty you bestow on him. This should definitely be paralleling us right back to verse one and the emphasis that David is having on God being the one who is always restoring all these things to him. Now look at verse 6. It says, For you make him most blessed forever. You may have a footnote there that says, Make him a source of blessing forever. Um, the Hebrew word that's used there, it's the same word that's used in Genesis when God talks about how he will make a covenant with Abraham and he'll make his um, offspring as numerous as the stars and they will be a blessing forever and ever. And that, I, I get why it was translated this way, but the idea really here is that God is making David and the nation of Israel a source of blessing for others forever, or that even that David is, God is using David as a vehicle of blessing for his people. Again, we see here from David the emphasis on responsible kingship and service to his people. And again, and then now look at the, the second half of the verse. We totally see where David's heart is here. It says, you make him glad with the joy of your presence. If there were any doubts we had about David just having this crazy desire for a a crown of gold upon his head, here we give an insight into where David's true joy is and what makes the heart of a good king is his truest, most profound joy is in the presence of God. And we see the same thing in verse 7. For the king trusts in the Lord, and through the steadfast love of the Most High he shall not be moved. David's security, his comfort, his, the ground below his feet is the love of God. Now, before I move on to the second half of this psalm, because it's kind of profoundly different, I want to do the A in or real quick for the first half of this. Just take a quick, just take some application out of this. So I want us to consider what David's been saying. He says, you are my strength. You have blessed me. And this people and his real joy is in God's presence. I want to pull out of this before we lose it and get to the end. Three ways I see here about how we see David had joy, but how we can understand how we lose our joy by understanding how David gets it. So one, once again, we see the emphasis, your strength, your salvation, your, your, your. We lose our joy when we try to be our own strength. And I know that's a term that we throw around up, down, sideways, left, all over the places. Oh, just trust in God, you don't lean upon your own strength, but like, I actually mean it, you know? Like, there's a reason why that's cliché, it's because it's actually true. I mean, if you put yourself really in the context of David fighting this crazy battle, and just like, just take a minute and think about trying to pull that cliche into actual reality, about where have, am I just running up against something And my reliance really is on my own ability. Am I really looking to God like David is here? Because if we try to do it on our own, of course we're going to lose our joy because we'll fail up, down, sideways all the time. So again, I know it's like a cliche term, but I would just encourage anyone listening to just like think about that as we leave tonight and where it's going on in your life. Um, Two, again, we see in verse six, it said, for you make him a source of blessing forever. I think we lose our joy when we're in the battle to be served and not to serve. Like David, as we've been seeing this whole time. You know, when Christ says that by laying down your life, you'll gain it. Guys, that's really the truth. Like, it's just... Man, I mean, that's where it is that somehow in this denying of what we think we want and how we think makes us happy and this actually laying down our lives for others and for Christ's cause, like, that's where the real joy is. Like, trying to fill our own desires just doesn't work. So, of course, we lose our joy. And number three, if God's presence is not our greatest joy, we'll never be secure. Like, we see at the end of this chunk here that the king trusts in the Lord. He's glad in the joy of his presence. Through his steadfast love, he shall not be moved. I mean, at least in my own life, like, I just see this to be so true, again, such a cliché. It's like, rest in God's love, right? Like, But guys, like, really? Like, actually, that David could trust that he was literally about to go up to someone that was going to try to kill him with a large sword. Like, really, like, put yourself in that context, like, facing imminent death. And he could say, like, I'm good. I'm okay. Like, I know my God loves me. And I know he'll protect me. And even if I fall today, my God is with me. Even after... <laughs> a a, a Bathsheba episode. Read Psalm 51 that that security was always there for David, and it's there for us, too. Okay. Three ways we lose our joy. Okay, let's move on to the second half of this. Okay. Verses 8 and 9. It reads, Your hand will find out all your enemies. Your right hand will find out those who hate you. You'll make them as a blazing oven when you appear. The Lord will swallow them up in his wrath, and fire will consume them. Now, again, let's take a look at the parallelism in verse 1 and in verse 5, about the emphasis that had always been on God this entire time, right? And again, we see that the enemies that are being referred to, David's not referring to them as his enemies, he's referring to them as God's enemies. Okay, and then we look at the second half of this. When it says you'll make them as a blazing oven when you appear, the Lord will swallow them up in his wrath and fire will consume them. I won't actually turn here, but if you want to write it down, Leviticus 10.2 is a good example of this, how we often see the Lord manifesting his presence through fire. And in Leviticus 10.2, we see a direct example of this happening when the sons of Aaron offered an inappropriate sacrifice before God that they weren't supposed to, and this literally happened. God just swallowed them up in fire instantly because they earned his wrath and they did something they were not supposed to be doing. I'm not saying you need to be worried about being consumed by fire instantly, but the emphasis here, right, again, this is meant to be understood as a contrast between the first half is, okay, this is God's people. These are the enemies of God. That they are his enemies if they are opposing God's people and they have a pretty terrible fate before them. They ought to be scared, unfortunately. Okay, moving on. Verses 10 to 12. You will destroy their descendants from the earth and their offspring from among the children of man. Though they plan evil against you, though they devise mischief, they will not succeed, for you will put them to flight. You will aim at their faces with your bows. Okay, verse 10 here. Um, Call back to Psalm 1 and... Again, we just see over and over and over the same themes over and over about the contrast between the wicked and the righteous. Again, think about God's promise to Abraham that his descendants will be as numerous as the stars in the sky, but the wicked, their descendants will be destroyed from the earth. That God preserves his people and gives them a future for us eternally, but the wicked do not. They have a future, but it's not with God, unfortunately. Okay. And then moving on to verse 11. Um, the, the language is kind of a little bit strange here, and it says they will not succeed. Uh, what the Hebrew, I mean, I get why it's translated, but what it's saying a little bit more is that they're going to make up plans, but they're not going to work, which is basically what the translation is saying. Um, I mean, I think is pretty self-explanatory. I mean, it, it can be confusing sometimes, right? Because we see the wicked do make plans, and they do seem to succeed. But I would encourage us to put this in conversation with the end of Genesis when Joseph is talking about what his brothers did to them and how even though they did it and they made a plan and they intended it for evil, God still used that for good. So though we can look at this and sometimes we'll see God just absolutely thwart a plan and people just won't be able to do it, I think we can still take this verse and apply it to an instance like that where they made a plan but it really didn't succeed because God still totally used it for his own purposes which I think we can take comfort in. And this last verse here is very interesting. Um, You may notice that last chunk kind of seems choppy grammatically, right? You will aim at their faces with your bows. Well, say, why is that? It's, you know, I'm no Hebrew expert, but this is a funky piece of language at the end here. (laughs) Um, What the text is more directly saying is For the first part, when it says, you will put them to flight, it's more so saying, you will turn them around. You will make the back of their shoulder face you. And then when it says, um, you will aim at their faces with your bows, the idea is that God will turn his people, will turn his enemies around, probably by scaring them, which is by the, I think it has the, you'll put them to flight there. So he'll turn them around, and then he'll knock an arrow and put it on a string and draw it and aim it towards them is the idea that it's really meaning to communicate here. I guess, the, like I said, I don't know Hebrew, but it's just a choppy piece of language. With the application being that God is going to scare his enemies, put them to flight, I mean, like it says, and he's coming for them. His arrow is knocked, and it's ready to go. But it hasn't, in some instances, it hasn't been let loose yet. And there's our hope of redemption. Okay, let us finish it here. Now, this verse, I think, really, I was thinking about doing another or chunk as an application here, but I think this verse 13 really just ties it up really well, because I think oftentimes, you know, we've discussed this in our Q&A here before, is we look at bits of violence like this and just this extreme, like, demolishing of God's enemies, and we say, like, why is the Lord like this? You know, like, I wouldn't treat my enemies like this, or maybe I would. (laughs) Um, Why is it like this? Let's look at the verse here. So after, consider the immediate context we've just read. It says, be exalted, O Lord, in your strength. We will sing and praise your power. Now remember what it said right in verse 8 about these are your enemies, and they are opposing your people. And this whole psalm is coming in the aftermath of a great battle. I think the way we can understand the way the Lord's responding to his enemies in a way that we can even read some of the the way the Lord talks about violence against his enemies throughout scripture is this is meant for the glory of God. That the Lord's utter defeat and demolition of enemies is just the natural consequence of his glory. That he will not share the throne with anybody because there is no one like him. And unless God is not God, and he's like us. If he's really going to be the supreme one, exalted above everybody else, everybody else has to bow. And that is a truth that I think our world really does not want to hear. And it can be hard for us to hear. Yes, right? Christ told us to be servants and to help others. We see from King David here about serving his people. But by the same token, even as we love the world we remember that God is a just God. And the reason we can have our humility before the world, at least in on one hand, is because we can remember vengeance is indeed his. And he will repay wickedness. And, be, and this should actually be an occasion, as we see, for us to praise God. That, you know, we can look at this and be like, oh God, like God's going to knock arrows against his enemies. Like, no, what this is showing is that God is strong. And right, if we want God to be strong in the trials in our life and all the things that are difficult, his strength is going to be across every way. So we should see from here God's absolute assurance that he will vanquish his enemies is his absolute assurance that he is more than strong enough to deal with anything we face here. This is the character of the God we serve. Okay, now let's row through the passage in a review. So let's observe what do we see here? That the Lord had given David a great victory, and blessed him both in terms of his earthly reign, as well as his relationship. And we would add there, as well as in his victory over his enemies. Oh, well, that was the second thing I was, <laughs> is that, so we see he gave David a victory, blessed him in his earthly reign, gave him a relationship, and we also see Absolute assurance that God is going to defeat his enemies as evidence of his strength. And in terms of application, we already covered the first half of this. Um, I would just bunch the second half into the relationship portion. And I think part of what the psalm is getting at in our relationship with God is there's really no middle ground, right? You're either in the first category and rejoicing in the strength of God and serving his people, and in the fight with him, and enjoying his relationship, or at least learning how to do that, or you're one of his enemies, and the first time you meet his presence fully, it's going to be scary. And unfortunately, he already has an arrow knocked, and that can change. We can go, we all started in the second category, right? This is the hope of the gospel. This is why Jesus Christ came, to ransom back his own enemies, the people who crucified him and gave them life. So, um, you know, if that strikes you, I would encourage you to, to reach out to us or if you're in the room today, I don't really, to talk. Um, man, this is the hope of Jesus Christ and our faith. So, man, guys, may the Lord be exalted in his strength. May we sing and praise his power forever. And I will open the floor if we have any more Q&A. It could be from this psalm, or if you saw something else about Psalm 20 in the meantime, feel free to ask about that, too. Jesse.
0: Uh, In the OR application, the ways we lose joy, would you just be able to quickly repeat those three ways again?
1: Yes, absolutely. So number one is we lose joy when we try to be our own strength. And... I didn't add this, but I wrote this down too. But when we, when we try to be our own strength and we withhold the request of our lips and we don't let them out. Number two is when we're not part of the battle to serve others, when our battle is for, to serve ourselves and not God's people and the world. And number three is when God's presence is not our greatest joy and we find our security in something other than a steadfast love. Jesse, do you have another question from Lindsay? (laughs) (laughs)
0: The blazing oven
1: thing. Did you look
0: into the Hebrew of that? Because that's super interesting to me. Of what that, uh, what it actually means, and where else we see that. Because I know you gave the um, the actual. Uh, description of what happened before, what that actually looks like, but that phrase, a blazing oven. I don't think I've ever seen it myself. (laughs) Did you happen to look and see where else that was in scripture, or if this is the only place that it exists?
1: Man, Jesse, that's such a good question. (laughs) Yeah, Another term that, I mean, like, yeah, it's a really odd turn of phrase, right? It almost makes you wonder if it's the same one that's used in describing, um, Daniel and his friends. Yes, yeah.
0: yeah, I was thinking I, of
1: that too. Man, I don't know. <laughs> I didn't I, I didn't look at it. I, I just caught the concept yeah. and, and I looked at it, but um damn, it would have been easy to run a language search. Great question, man. Yeah, I'll try to remember to look into that or if you get the chance and you can enlighten me, because that's a really good question. Righty. All right, well, guys, thank you for attending tonight. Thank you for listening to Biblical Literacy 101. I pray the Lord has blessed you through this. And let's close in prayer. That would be a good thing. Heavenly Father, Lord, we rejoice in your steadfast love, Lord, that you are our strength and we have such a beautiful mission to be able to serve you and lay ourselves at your feet, Lord God. We thank you that you are stronger than anything or anyone else in this world, Heavenly Father. That God, um, when our battles are righteous and they line up with your will, God, you are fighting our battles. You are fighting the battle to make your church pure, um, even when that's not exactly what we want, Heavenly Father. So God, I pray that we would be like King David, Lord, and that we would have hearts that line up with your will, Heavenly Father. That, God, that we may truly be able to pray that you may give us the desire of our hearts because our desire is your desire, Heavenly Father. Oh, God, may you transform us and take away all of our idolatry, Lord, and bring together a people who are eager to bring forth their banners and declare war upon the enemy and all his infernal purposes in the earth, Lord God. Oh, Father, I pray that you would start a Columbus Baptist Church, Heavenly Father, as we already know you are all across your world, Lord God. May you bless your people and give them victory, and ultimately, God, may it be your victory, Heavenly Father. And may you oppose your enemies, God, and strike them down, and we pray you'd redeem them, Heavenly Father as we look forward to the redemption you are bringing to this whole earth, Lord God. I thank you for all my brothers and sisters who are gathered here tonight, as all of those who may be listening. Heavenly Father, Lord, may you guide us to be a people holy to you, Lord God. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Thank you.
0: Thank you for listening to this week's class. If you are between the ages of 18 to 40 and you're interested in joining us in person, Class is held every Friday night beginning at 6.30 p.m. at Columbus Baptist Church. You can find us online at cbcnj.com. That's cbcnj.com. Thanks again for joining us and we'll see you next week.